the U.S. Air Force has a new big budget superweapon. B-21 rollout uh, occurred this past month. Uh, it's the first rollout of a new bomber since basically November of 1988, almost over 34 years since wow. we rolled out a new bomber. The B-21 will run approximately $700 million per copy. Um, wow. And that's assuming that the Air Force, um, or at least what's advertised, is the Air Force will buy at least 100 plus of these aircraft over the life of the contract. I would say it is definitely a form of deterrence. So when we say deterrence, uh, we mean, or what I, I mean, this is what I do uh, for the military today, which is teach deterrence. So deterrence, in, in, by definition, uh, means we are trying to influence an adversary's calculus. What is it like to fly something like a B-2? Is it exhilarating or is it work? It is thrilling, but it is um, it is very labor, well, I say labor intensive. It's very, I think some people look at the movie Maverick and think that there's these uh, F-14s in Iran lying around that can be started and moved in a heartbeat and taken off. And, uh, <laughs> yes, we may have sold F-14s to Iran, but I doubt they're in any kind of operational capability today. Yeah. But if you want peace, as one famous Latin saying goes, if you want peace, prepare for war. So his idea is if you're always at war, um, the adversary will not think twice about challenging the United States. The equipment that we see in Ukraine would not do well against uh, a modern U.S. fighting force. So therefore, they have built um, these tactical nuclear weapons as a way to deter U.S. conventional capability. That's why they're that's why they're doing it. Did you know that no U.S. service member has been killed by an enemy aircraft since the Korean War? That's because the mission of the U.S. Air Force was, is, and will be to gain and to maintain air superiority. Hey there, news peelers. Today's January 13, 2023. And this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel in the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. The Wall Street Journal tells the interesting background to this development from our Air Force. For example, for about a decade, employees of Northrop Grumman were not allowed to even tell their own families what project they were working on until last year, when the veil of secrecy was lifted and the B-21 Raider was finally shown to the world in December. The New York Times points out that this story 
went largely unnoticed. And they're right, we didn't hear much about the B-21 in the news media or on social media. But I think it's an exciting story. And it's also an important development for our country's geopolitical position in a changing world. Also pointed out by the New York Times, you will probably be very happy to know that the B-21 program has been run on time and under budget. And as far as budgets go, our country's military spending is about 3% of our GDP now, which is lower than about the 4% average of the past 50 years. So, given that the U.S. Air Force has been shrinking its bomber fleet since the collapse of the USSR, the Soviet Union, why develop the B-21 radar now? Why embark on a huge and highly costly new bomber project now? While many of us who listen to the news from Russia, China, and Iran could probably come up with some sort of answer, to dig deeper, as we always do, I spoke with Dr. Melvin Daly. He's the director of the School of Advanced Nuclear and Deterrence Studies and an associate professor in the Department of International Studies at Air University's Command and Staff College. Air University is located in Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, and is a professional military education university system of the United States Air Force. And in this episode, we'll hear more about this institution from my guest. Dr. Daly teaches classes on nuclear deterrence, nuclear strategy, joint war fighting, and classical military thought. He's a retired Air Force colonel, where he served two tours in the B-52 Strato Fortress and a tour in the B-2 Spirit. He has flown combat operations as part of Operations Desert Storm and Operation Enduring Freedom, including a record-setting 44.3-hour combat mission and deployed in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He is the recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Distinguished Graduate of the USAF Weapons School. Dr. Daly recently published his first book, Always at War, which chronicles the development of Sachs organizational culture under General Curtis LeMay. Of course, we discussed that book in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Daly, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode, where I've also provided an Amazon link to his latest book, Always at War. So, stay with me as Dr. Daly and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Daly, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. In early December, the Pentagon showed off its first new bomber in more than 30 years. It's the B-21 Raider. So please tell us about this new aircraft. Well, uh, first of all, to start off, I want to thank you for having me on the program today. And I just by way of disclaimer, got to make sure everybody understands that these are my views, not the views of the Air Force or the Department of Defense. Um, what I will say is, so the B-21 rollout uh, occurred this past month. Uh, it's the first rollout of a new bomber since basically November of 1988, almost over 34 years since wow. we rolled out a new bomber. Um, the B-21 is the Air Force's next generation bomber. Uh, it is named the Raider. Uh, it went through a competition uh, to select the name, and the name Raider was uh, selected as a, as, as a heritage to the Doolittle Raiders, who were the group that made the sacrificial 
uh, first attack on Tokyo following Pearl Harbor. I see. Um, so it's got a historical name to it. Um, what role will it play in the U.S. military? So I would say that the uh, B-21 bomber will play a role that um, historically has been played by all bombers in the Air Force, which really is to evade enemy radar, evade enemy air defenses, and strike targets to first and foremost establish air superiority, which is always the mission of the Air Force, to go out and gain and maintain air superiority and a time and place of our choosing. And that's what the first mission, I would say, of the B-21 would be, to play a role in gaining and maintaining air superiority, and then um, to do what bombers have historically done, which is to degrade or destroy the enemy's warfighting capability. When you say evade uh, enemy radar, um, are you talking about stealth technology? So this, I'll give you my idea of uh, stealth. So to okay. me, um, stealth means using low observable properties of the aircraft combined with tactics to minimize the aircraft's exposure to enemy radar. So uh, I will say that, that no aircraft in the Air Force inventory has a cloaking device, um, no aircraft. For those who are Star Trek fans, or even for those who may be uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special fans, um, there is no cloaking <laughs> device on enemy and any aircraft in the U.S. Air Force inventory. What we is that why you're saying low observable? That means it's yes. not complete. Okay, got it. Right. Yeah. So low observable just means that each aircraft is designed to manage the electromagnetic spectrum in a different way. Uh, you can look at the designs of the F-117 compared to the B-2 compared to the F-22. And each aircraft just handles the electromagnetic spectrum differently. Um, and then you take what that those characteristics are and you combine it with planning in order to minimize detection by enemy radar. The B-2 Spirit aircraft in which you served was also a stealth aircraft correct that's correct is the stealth mode technology of that aircraft different uh than the b-21 now is the b-21 going to be more stealth if you will in order to avoid i, I wouldn't say because i don't again I, I am not read into the b-21 program so uh -huh. um, i have no idea about the capabilities of that aircraft what i would say is this um the B-21 looks a lot similar to the B-2 in terms of its overall shape. But what we have learned, I would say, since the um, rollout of the B-2 is I would say we have learned how to do low observable maintenance and a learning curve that makes it easier to maintain these aircraft. For example, uh, when the B-2 uh, first was uh, came out and was fielded, um, an individual climate-controlled hangar was built for every B-2 aircraft at Whiteman Air Force Base. Uh, wow. Even when it deployed, there were uh, going to be hangars built in order to maintain the LO properties of the aircraft. Um, that requirement 
has not come out for the B-21 because I believe we have come a long way in our ability to maintain the LO properties of aircraft. So that's what primarily I would say is the difference between the B-2 and the B-21 is the ability of the aircraft uh, to do better LO maintenance. Uh, secondly, um, when the B-2 B was initially fielded, its technology, and it has had some upgrades, but think of its, its technology as being analogous to 1986 technology. It was processing power is probably on the order of a Commodore 64, or for those who are familiar, <laughs> the old um, 286s. Right? Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's kind of what the processing power of the B-2 was at the time. The B-21... Um, um, Dr. Daly, has it been upgraded? Has the B-2 technology sort of kept up with the times? Or is the B-2... Is the current B-2 technology still that, like, you know, 1986 technology? I would say that some aspects of the B-2 are still at that Commodore 64 uh, 286 processing <laughs> power. It is a... Um, the B-2 is a fly-by-wire aircraft. In other words, if you look at the aircraft, it does not have the traditional uh, rudder elevators that you know our airliner aircraft have. So it has it's a fly-by-wire. It has uh, computers that help it fly in the air um, because of the fact that it's a flying wing, not a traditional-looking aircraft. Um, there are upgrades in the aircraft that have increased processing power, but really the over, it's not a plug and play type aircraft. And that's probably where the B-21 is also an, advan an advancement different from the B-2. As mentioned, the B-21 will have an or open architecture that is easily upgradable. I would oh, say nice. analogous to plug and play or for your listeners or anybody who has an iPhone or for those who drive a Tesla, think of it as, you know, when there's a, a vulnerability identified or a, or a capability that needs to be pushed, um, we get a notice on our iPhone or people who drive Teslas, they can download these upgrades. It's that kind of open architecture that the B21 um, has been advertised as having that the B2 did not have. Oh, interesting. Um, that's wonderful. You talked about individual hangars for the B-2, which immediately started, you know, made me think of costs and dollars. So let's go to the B-21. How much does the B-21 Raider cost? Um, the open source reporting is that um, the B-21 will run approximately $700 million per copy. Um, wow. And that's assuming that the Air Force, um, or at least what's advertised, is the Air Force will buy at least 100 plus of these aircraft over the life of the contract and whatever life that is. Um, some people have said that the B-2 is um, a $2 billion aircraft. B-2 or B-21? B-2. Okay. Was roughly about $2 billion per copy. Oh, wow. Um, More expensive. Yeah, but that has to, so you have to roll in some historical context there. For example, um, the B-2 was initially rolled out in 1988. Um, the wall fell in 1989, and now we're in the period of 
um, post-Cold War environment where it was deemed that we didn't need as many B2s as were initially uh, programmed to buy. So the initial buy on the B2 was going to be roughly 132. Uh, the Air Force or the government rather made the decision that because of the fall of the wall, a post-Cold War world, a peace dividend, uh, we did not need as many B2s. So the plan was to cut, basically was cut from 132 down to 21 B2s. And that just all that R&D cost that was spent on the front half has to be then, you know, averaged across the fleet. Yeah. It was supposed to be 132, but now it's only 21, which made the cost per aircraft go up significantly. You 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 made a reference to Tesla, so so I'll stick <laughs> so I'll stick with your car reference here. Is the 700 million dollar price tag is that sort of like the for a base model? of the b21 or as you know um will the cost dramatically increase to sort of fulfill specific purposes for different uh, theaters or missions or what have you yeah the the b the bombers we have are not necessarily like some of the i would say fighter aircraft that we have where you have like a 15c that's an air-to-air -air fighter versus a 15e that's more of a, a multi-role air-to-ground and air-to-air -air fighter um the b 21 will be one bomber to do all missions is what, uh -huh. is what I've learned or what I've read and what I believe, uh, just like the B2, the B2, any bomber in the B2 fleet can do any missions that any other bomber in the B2 fleet can do. There's not a specific uh, different models, if you will. I see. Um, you know, we talked about the B2, there's the B52 Strato Fortress and other um, um other bombers in our fleet. Um, will the B-21 Raider replace any of them? Do you know? So the so right now the current Air Force bomber fleet is made up, as you mentioned, um, the B-52 Stratofortress. Uh, we have the B-1 bomber, and then we have the B-2 Spirit. Um, what I would say is that um, as B-21s come off the assembly line and get into the active fleet, uh, the B1s and the B2s uh, will slowly get phased out. And then mm -hmm. um, we are still keeping the B52 around for probably another couple of decades. Um, it will be, mod it's already been uh, programmed to be modified with some new engines, some new technology, and we'll add a variant of the B52. The current variant is the B52H. Um, we'll be adding the B-52J as the next variant of the B-52, and it'll be a re-engine with a new technology, but we'll still keep that B-52 around, and our future fleet will be a complement of B-52s coupled with the B-21s that we'll buy. How long have the B-52s been around? What is it, 60 years now? Oh, it's. Uh, I would say probably if you wanted to... <laughs> If you wanted to um, put it in a timeline, uh, some would say that the last uh, B-52 pilot has not even been born yet. If that, <laughs> if that gives you a, an idea of how long this aircraft wow. will be around, um, it could be around for another uh, 25 years plus. Um, what I would say is this, uh, the aircraft, the B-52, the first aircraft, 
uh, came off the assembly line in roughly 1956. The oh, last boy. B-52 came off the uh, assembly line in 1962. Um, yeah, it's been around um, well over, so it's been in service 60 plus years. Yeah. Um, and the minute we have left of this segment, I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Daly, what is it like to fly something like a B-2? Is it exhilarating or is it work? It is thrilling, but it is um, it is very labor. Well, I say labor intensive. It's very um, because there are only a B-52 complement crew is uh, five people. A B-1 is four people. Um, the B-2 is a is only a two person crew. Oh, only so a two a person. Okay. For those two people to do, um, but it is a fly by wire aircraft. Uh, which means it does have a lot of the automative, I say automate, uh, automation that we think of. Uh, you punch in an altitude, it will climb to an altitude. You tell it to turn to a certain heading, it'll turn to a certain heading. Um, based on what modern aircraft are in our airline inventory today, the only uh, technology it does not have, I would say, is auto throttle. It's still the, the pilots still have to manually move the I see. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about the military strategy of deterrence. We'll be right back. Last year, when a super confident Mr. Putin unleashed what he then called a special military operation on Ukraine, thinking that his superior forces would be popping champagne in Kiev in just a short few days, I spoke with Dr. David Stone of the U.S. Naval War College. He told me the history of wars in Ukraine, although Russia and Ukraine have been at conflict for long stretches of their histories, Dr. Stone pins down their modern wars to a specific event, and it's a fascinating story. Also, I don't think it's been lost to any of us that in addition to waging war on Ukraine's borders, sovereignty, and people, Mr. Putin has also waged war on Ukraine's religion, culture, history, and national identity. So, I spoke to Dr. Catherine Warner, who teaches history, anthropology, and religion, and has been studying Ukraine for decades now. Right off the bat, I asked her a simple question. Who are Ukrainians? The links to my conversations with Drs. Stone and Warner are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Daly. Dr. D.L.E., is the Pentagon's recent showing showing off of the B-21 aircraft? I'm, I'm not talking about, obviously, its develop, de- deployment. I'm just referring to the mere announcement of its existence. Is that in and of itself a form of deterrence? I would say it is definitely a form of deterrence. So when we say deterrence, uh, we mean, or what I, I mean, this is what I do, uh, for the military today, which is teach deterrence. So deterrence, in, in, by definition, uh, means we are trying to influence an adversary's calculus such that uh, they perceive that the benefit of the benefit of their action um, is the. Well, let me rephrase that: that the cost of their action is greater than the benefit of their action. So we're trying to tell them that. Uh, the cost is greater than the benefit. And so when we roll out a B-21, 
what we're really saying is uh, any threat to the U.S.'s national security interest um, is not going to be in your best interest because we have the ability to strike any target at any time, or I would just say that we have the ability to hold any target at risk. Uh, and look at the technology that the U.S. has. Uh, look at what we got. Nobody can match that technology. We just passed a major defense bill back in September. I think it was $874 billion. That's the last number I had. Now, limiting our discussion here to uh, the U.S. air power, do you think that military development, uh, maintenance, and buildup truly works as a deterrence? We went through about 60 years of it during the Cold War, right, or whatever, right. however long it was. So first of all, um, when we say, you know, $800 billion, uh, that's still um, within the 5 to 6% of our GDP um, which is historically where our defense budget lies. It's just as our GDP grows, so does our defense budget. But we still lie within that five to six percent of. GDP. So the percentage hasn't increased of our, right? Right. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Um, what I would say is this: so um, along the B twenty one is part of modernizing each leg of the nuclear triad. So we are modernizing our bomber leg. We are modernizing our uh, intercontinental ballistic missile leg, which is with the Sentinel program. And then we're going to modernize our submarine, nuclear-capable submarine fleet um, that has SLBMs, right? Sea-launched uh, ballistic missile leg of the triad. So with the Columbia class. So all three legs of the triad are being modernized. And if you say, does deterrence work? Understand that uh, since 1945, uh, a war in which we lost 60 million people in World War II, but we have not had a conflict on that scale since the advent of the nuclear age. And so, in my opinion, uh, nuclear deterrence works because uh, we have not come anywhere close to that um, level of destruction, loss of life. Uh, since we've entered the nuclear age. Um, which, I, so I deduce from what you just shared with me that um, the B-21 is capable of carrying nuclear weapons, right? Uh, that is, as I understand it, that is will be the plan that the Air Force will, will pursue. According to a recent Wall Street Journal article, we, and, and many other articles, this is not exclusive to the Wall Street Journal, uh, the current U.S. bomber fleet is the smallest and oldest in Air Force history. First, uh, is this correct? Yes, I would say that, uh, so when we say, um, for example, when we say the smallest, yes, in terms of airframe numbers, it is the smallest. Uh, which is why we need to modernize it, why we need to replace some of our aging systems uh, with the B-21. But we also have to understand where we are at with capability. So, for example. Capability, uh, okay. I flew in uh, Desert Storm in uh, B-52. Uh, my mission in Desert Storm with the B-52 was to go to a target, three aircraft, um, and drop 
45 weapons on one target, one pass, and that was all three aircraft. Uh, you fast forward 20 years uh, to my mission in the B-21, now with precision weapons, um, GPS-aided weapons. Uh, I was able to fly to four targets and drop multiple weapons on different targets in the same mission. So if you think about it, we used to, it, from World War II, even through Desert Storm, we used to talk about uh, planes per target, or um, uh, or I would say even um, we used to talk about, right, how many planes do we need per target? Today, we talk about how many targets can one plane service because of our ah. increase in precision, uh, our increase uh, in the ability of a carrying capacity. And so now, while we have a smaller fleet, we have more, I would say, capacity uh, when it comes, especially when it comes to employing precision weapons than we did previously. So can I conclude from what you just shared with me that although our quantity is smaller and perhaps we're an older fleet, our... our um, power and deterrence capability sort of superiority has been maintained. Is right. That so, yes. I would say if you look at, um, you know, B-52s can carry 20-ish uh, weapons at one time, standoff to precision. Uh, B-2s can carry 16. B-1s can carry 27 at times. Um, so, but each of those is a precision weapon that can service one target versus, you know, this old adage where um, we used to worry about how many planes can we put on one target. And so that's, that's where I would say the capacity and the capability of our modern fleet is greater than any uh, time in history, but it is an aging fleet. Uh, the last B-62 came off in 1962. Uh, the last B-1 was in the 1980s. The last B-2 was roughly, um, in the 2000s that the last one came off the assembly line. So yes, it is a an aging fleet, which is why we need to, to produce the B-21 yeah. to replace some of these aircraft. Um, in the remaining minute of this segment, let's shift gears for a moment and talk about sharing our technology with our allies. We have a, a robust uh, military complex that sells weapons. Is it a case that we sell older version of our aircraft or our allies uh, i'm curious about this because what if an ally suddenly becomes an enemy such as in the case of iran in 1979 as uh, one guest shared with our audience in an earlier episode iran was the largest purchaser of the u.s military hardware including aircrafts but then suddenly became sort of you know anti-american and i'm not saying we're going to go through another such a case but there may be unfriendly situations. For example, we had this spat with France last year about the submarines. Uh, so what is the sort of the policy of selling high-tech weapons from the Air Force right. to other countries? So, yeah. So when it comes to things like Iran, and um, now no country was mentioned in the movie Maverick, but I think some people look at the movie Maverick and think that there's these uh, F-14s 
in Iran lying around that can be started and moved in a heartbeat and taken off. And, uh, <laughs> yes, we may have sold F-14s to Iran, but I doubt they're in any kind of operational capability today. Yeah. Um, what I would say is this. Um, we do sell military hardware technology uh, to uh, allies and partners. When we do that, uh, Congress is involved. Uh, they are aware of the capabilities that we give to other nations. And I would also say they are aware um, on any uh, capabilities that are withheld. If we were to sell someone uh, an aircraft, but we weren't to give them the full complement, uh, Congress is aware of that. Uh, when it comes to strategic bombers, no strategic bomber has ever been sold through foreign military sales to an ally or partner to date. Interesting. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about our Air Force and your book. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Daly. The title of your relatively recent book is Always at War, Organizational Culture in Strategic Air Command, 1946 to 1962, and Transforming War. What is this book about? So first and foremost, it's a book about um, what I would say is the Air Force's premier uh, deterrent command during the Cold War, which was Strategic Air Command. And how that command is, is that, is that uh, SAC where people yes, okay okay air command so SAC and how that command developed uh, its organizational culture how it trained to do the deterrent mission uh, always at war comes from uh, General LeMay who was the second commander of Strategic Air Command when he came into command in 1948. He put the command on notice that we are no longer preparing for war, but we are always at war with the enemy. And that's the, huh. you know, he was a central, his idea was if you want to, so kind of like this goes in line with our discussion on uh, the, the, the defense budget, but if you want peace, as one famous Latin saying goes, if you want peace, prepare for war. So his idea is if you're always at war, um, the adversary will not think twice about challenging the United States. That's very hawkish, isn't it? So General May was um, was someone, right, who's a controversial figure, I would say, in U.S. history and air power history. Um, but he is uh, he did um, start an organizational culture in Strategic Air Command that I would say lasted well past his tenure. And a lot of what he did in Strategic Air Command still resonates and resides in our Air Force today. 
So any any anecdotes or examples you want to share about that uh, organizational culture, anything peculiar or, or interesting, fascinating that stands oh, out? So, yeah. so I would say this. So General LeMay was, um, and I'll I talk a long time about General LeMay. He's a fascinating uh, historical figure. Um, but one of the more interesting things about General LeMay is that um, while he was very mission oriented and wanted to do this uh, always at war footing that he put strategic air command on, he also understood that it took a toll on uh, the average airman of the day. And so he wanted to provide some ways for airmen to enjoy life outside of work. Um, so he was a big, General May was a big car enthusiast. He even one time put a jet engine in a car. Um, <laughs> he, he would close Air Force bases and have drag races down the runway. Um, so, his, I, so he started, and this is part of the legacy of General LeMay in today's Air Force, uh, he started uh, auto hobby shops on all of the Air Force bases, wow. which many Air Force bases today have auto hobby shops where airmen can go do oil changes, fix their brakes, et cetera, um, provided by the Air Force. The other um, thing I would say is he was very concerned about, so a lot of the bases that the Air Force got after uh, you know we split from the army we're still maintained an army barracks type environment and he was of the mindset that uh, deterrence is a 24 7 operation and so uh, he went from a barracks architecture to a dormitory system so that airmen weren't you know disturbing others in their sleep cycle because there were you know uh, 24 7 ops so he started the dormitory system so that airmen would have a place that they could call their own, uh, where they could uh, get rest because of the different shifts. Like separate rooms, closed doors, and what right. have you. Yeah, yeah. And so that dormitory system still presides in the Air Force today, and it traces its lineage back to General LeMay. So it's not just what he did in terms of operations, but also his care of the airmen that still uh, exist in our Air Force today. Do you think that uh, mantra or ethos of always at war will fly today and therefore, so no pun intended there. What I mean no, back then, we had the Cold yeah. War. Yeah. So his, now I will say that, uh, so as part of the research for the book, I went out and talked to uh, several, I went to a lot of uh, alumni associations or I say alumni, uh, of SAC former SAC members, people who flew uh, B-46s, B-36s, uh, B-47, sorry, B-47s, B-36s, uh, B-52s under the SAC era, missileers, maintainers under the SAC era. A lot of them agreed with what General LeMay was doing at the time that he was doing it. Uh, now, uh, what General LeMay really was about, uh, I will say this, is that uh, realistic training, competition, and no notice inspections, which in his mind meant if I show up on a base, I want to see that the airmen are ready to execute their mission. Oh, Those, boy. Yeah. So he was. No notice he, inspections. Okay. Yeah. So he was, even if you watch the movie uh, Strategic Air Command with Jimmy Stewart, he is 
famous for what's being done in that movie, which is the general just landing on the base unannounced and a wing commander coming up and he's like, execute your war plan uh, to see if that wing was ready to do their mission. Uh, those type of things still exist in our Air Force today. If we want to have uh, a truly deterrent mission, how do you prepare forces um, to go to war and to do their mission without actually, right, without actually employing them? His idea was competition, uh, no notice inspections, and realistic training that these uh, hone the, the warfighter and keep them ready to go, as well as deterring the adversary from even attempting uh, to challenge America. I see. Let's talk about the role of the Air Force, okay. um, of our Air Force. One of the things that I, I, I need to appreciate as a, as, a, as a civilian, as a layperson here is this. We have an Air Force, but yet different branches of our military also have their own Air Forces, if you will, small a, small f. I was reading that the Navy is the second largest Air Force in the world uh, after the U.S. Air Force. So where does that leave the U.S. Air Force, given that other branches also have uh, air power? What is the role of the Air Force then? Well, this is what I would say. If you were to, um, and I don't want to speak for the Navy, but for each of the services, they do have a component that is, um, that does have an, that does have airframes assigned. Um, what the Air, so for example, the Navy, um, if you were to ask them what, and this is just my opinion, having served as an Air Force person, but worked with the Navy, mm -hmm. uh, their air power primarily, first and foremost, is there for fleet defense, uh, defending the fleet. Uh, if you were to ask the Marines what their Air Force is there for, it would say to do a combined arms uh, operation with the Marine Air Ground Task Force. So to be that organic, close air support that the Marines need when they do their mission. Uh, the same thing if you were to talk to the Army. The Army has a lot of helicopters. I would say that the Army has, when you count the number of helicopters, the Army probably exceeds the Air Force in total number of airframes uh, wow. because of all the helicopters that they have. But their helicopters are really, first and foremost, there for organic close air support. So. Uh, where the Air Force comes in is, one, uh, we do not just the kinetic striking that you're, you're very familiar with um, when it comes to bombers and fighters, but we also have uh, air refueling, which is what most, most services rely on the Air Force for that air refueling if they're going to go into any uh, maybe harm's way. They need the Air Force to do that air refueling. Um, the Air Force also has inter and intra theater airlift. So your C-130s, your C-17s, um, most of the goods that go logistics that are done by air are done by the Air Force. So uh, those are the missions that the Air Force does above and beyond what the other services have their, their air fleets for. Um, and then also I would say that what the Air Force has really done is 
it has a preponderance of the forces, but it also has uh, the ability to command and control those forces. So in most theaters, um, the Air Operations Center is going that command and controls all of the different air forces are going to be uh, is going to be run by Air Force personnel and usually commanded by an Air Force general because um, we understand how to command and control aircraft. I would say uh, that's one of our key components as a service. Um, do you think the role of our Air Force has changed in the 21st century in the last 20 years? We no longer have the Cold War. We have China. Uh, we are no longer in Iraq or Afghanistan. Therefore, we don't have ground troops there. So is there a new paradigm uh, for the Air Force to deal with? So I would say that the role of the Air Force, its mission, first foremost, is or was, is and will be uh, to gain and maintain air superiority. So um, and why is that important? Because uh, no U.S. service member has been killed by an enemy aircraft since the Korean War. Oh, wow. So this is uh, that's why. That's why air superiority is is very important. Now, um, the mission of the Air Force will not change. How the Air Force accomplishes that mission has to evolve as our adversaries evolve or as threats evolve or as technology evolves. Um, for example, um, while we think of traditional uh, ability to gain and maintain air superiority as um, you know, going after an enemy's airfields, going after their integrated air defense system. Um, in the, we know now there is a just a large number of drones out there. So you also have to account for that when you're doing air superiority, not just the fighter on fighter type of air superiority. Do different branches of our military have their own drones or are drones uh, uh, part of the Air Force? Uh, I would say other services have drones to do other missions. Uh, and what I mean by that is if I'm on the Army, I might want um, a small UAV that just pops up and scouts the terrain in front of me to see if there are enemy, any enemy aircraft out there or enemy forces, rather, that are out there on the ground. Uh, I might want a short uh, UAV to unmanned vehicle to look at that. Um, whereas the Air Force, I would say, uses unmanned systems um, to do uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, as well as what's been publicized in the news, which is this, you know, which is the ability to to do targeted kills if necessary. Um, Dr. Dealy, in the minute we have left of this segment, um, I want to bring up a question that I asked you during the break, and I think um, our audience would also be interested. Uh, so I'll ask it again. What's the difference between Air University, where you teach and conduct research, and the U.S. Air Force Academy? So the U.S. Air Force Academy, to me, and I went to the academy, is one of many uh, ways to be uh, ascension, uh, ascension pathways to become an officer in the Air Force um, you can go to ROT, through ROTC, you can go through OTS after having get, gotten a, an undergraduate degree, or you can go to the academy. 
The Academy is an undergraduate degree granting institution. Uh, that's what it's accredited for. Air University, think of it as, a, for the average person, as a graduate school. So um, we have ah, I see. our Air Command and Staff College and Air War College, which are both graduate degree accredited granting institutions. I see. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. D.A. Lee as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. D.L.E., you're the director of the School of Advanced Nuclear and Deterrence Studies and also teach classes on nuclear deterrence and nuclear strategy. So I want to bring up the subject of the war in Ukraine. We're hearing more and more about Russia's small nuclear arms. When, when I think of a nuclear bomb, I think of the big mushroom cloud and radioactive fallout and sort of decades of residual misery, illness, and death, and what have you. So uh, how is a nuclear weapon classified as small, or I guess tactical is also another term they use? So um, so a couple of things. Uh, in order to kind of give everybody just a, a rough idea of when, it when we talk about nuclear um, weapons, how we classify them. Uh, so first of all, when we talk about low yield, I believe the Federation of American Scientists would say anything below 20 kilotons is a low yield. So if you think about that, Hiroshima and Nagasaki even fall within the low yield category. Um, well, they fall within the low yield? Yes. So oh, my Hiroshima goodness. Being, well, yeah, Hiroshima being roughly 16 kilotons and Nagasaki being 21, 20 to 21 kilotons. So even that, by Federation of American Scientists' definition, is low yield. Um, we have had low yield weapons throughout the existence of the nuclear bomb. Um, so anything from the U.S. used to field nuclear mortars, nuclear artillery shells, uh, we do not field those anymore. Uh, wait, if, so if, if I may uh, yes. inter interject here for a moment, please. If 20 kilotons is considered low yield, I'm frightened to ask what is considered high yield or mega yield. Well, well anything Only. above that. So I can't, I can't specifically say what, you know, kilotonnage our weapons uh, specifically have, but um, the Russians at one time exploded Tsar Bomba, which was, um, if I want to, 57 megatons, um, the largest U.S. test. Uh, we've ever done is probably Castle Bravo, and it was, uh, I, I'm straining to remember, but it was roughly 9 to 10 megatons. Um, so those are large yields, wow. <laughs> if you will. Okay. Um, the Air Force has one megaton class weapon left in its inventory system, and according to the President's 2022 nuclear posture review that came out as part of the 2022 nuclear defense strategy, um, he 
plans to retire the last remaining megaton class weapon in the Air Force. Um, now, oh, let's talk two other things. When we talk classification of uh, tactical versus uh, strategic, uh, I'll use the example of the B-61. The B-61 is a weapon in the U.S. inventory. It can be carried on uh, fighter aircraft, but can also be carried on bomber aircraft. Um, so what makes it tactical or strategic? And the best way to look at this is those systems that are covered under a treaty, in this case, the New START Treaty, are considered strategic delivery vehicles. Therefore, the weapon is a strategic weapon. Whereas uh, any weapon not under the New START Treaty, uh, B-61s that can be carried for fighters, for example, are considered tactical merely because they're not under a strategic arms treaty. Does that make sense? It does. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around what's the difference for a real person, for a soldier or a civilian living in Ukraine, whether it's a small nuclear bomb or let's say, you know, whether it's 19 kilotons or 21 kilotons, it's equally devastating, right? Right. So and what I would say is any use, um, employment of a nuclear weapon is a strategic decision um, and has strategic implications. How we classify them for arms control purposes is really those that are covered by uh, strategic treaties or strategic arms reduction treaties or strategic arms limitation treaties versus those that aren't covered. So when we say Russia has a tremendous amount of uh, tactical weapons, what we mean is Russia is building weapons that are not covered by a strategic uh, the New START Treaty. So they have a significant inventory of weapons outside of the New START Treaty construct, which concerns people. Now, why do they have those weapons? Um, so we're talking about uh, our capabilities as a nation, as the United States of America. Um, we have seen the capabilities of Russia on display in Ukraine, and um, they are not going as well as planned. To say uh, with their, with yeah. their conventional capabilities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they could understand that if they were to, uh, and we don't want this to happen, right? But if they were to um, confront the United States, the equipment that we see in Ukraine would not do well against uh, a modern U.S. fighting force. So you mean the Russian they, equipment in Ukraine. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Would not do well against the modern U.S. fighting force, the Russian equipment. So therefore, they have built um, these tactical nuclear weapons as a way to deter U.S. conventional capability. That's why they're, that's why they're doing it, because they understand that um, they may not have stealth, they may not have um, as good of a JDAM system as we do or long-range standoff, but in order to deter the United States, they have decided to field a considerable amount of low low yield outside of a treaty tactical nuclear weapons so 
in summation of what you just said, there's nothing small about it. These are not precision bombs. Right? They're, they're going to still wipe out cities if they're bigger than Hiroshima, the, the bomb that you know destroyed Hiroshima, right? So I would say that, you know, again, low yield is anything below 20 kilotons. What, you know, you can talk about, uh, you know, small yield, uh, again, artillery shells or mortars, which is what the United States used to field. Um, why don't we have those systems around it anymore? Because we have made a concerted effort to build up our conventional capability. Yeah. But uh, so those systems... Uh, don't serve as much of a deterrent as their current dimensional capability. I see. I want to speak with you about uh, nuclear strategy. Uh, with nations like Iran, our nuclear strategy is likely to prevent nuclear proliferation. And <laughs> this makes sense. Uh, but what about when it comes to, let's say, North Korea, which is kind of a rogue, if you will, nuclear power, or worse yet, uh, you know, Russia has established nuclear power and then China is a rising nuclear power what is our nuclear strategy there so i would say our nuclear strategy per the president's nuclear posture review of 2022 which is um in line with his 2022 nuclear defense or sorry national defense strategy is basically that the president reserves the right to use nuclear weapons in extreme circumstances and mm -hmm. that's left up to the president to define what I would say is our nuclear strategy remains pretty much the same as what it has since we fielded a deterrent, which is um, these weapons are kept at the ready, used every day um, to prevent any nation from thinking that they can attack the United States um, without, again, that deterrence thing. The benefit mm -hmm. of attacking the United States is not going to be as great as the cost to your nation. What has changed, I would say, is this. So um, we always think of the Cold War as maybe the paradigm for this new um, era of global power competition where you have three um, main national or, I'm sorry, world actors. So um, in the Cold War, it was just the United States and Russia. What has changed is what I have written about and what others have written about, what I call the three-body problem, which is... Say that again, please. I'm sorry, the what problem? The three-body problem. Three-body problem, okay. Yes. So if you think about it, right, so when he was in his pandemic, uh, Sir Isaac Newton uh, wrote this, uh, came up with gravity and calculus, right? And so in the okay. pandemic, I was watching Tiger King, right? So, but... <laughs> But <laughs> his idea was, so what Newton said is, I can define the relationship between any two bodies, the sun and the earth, the earth and uh, the moon, and the sun and the moon. I can define that gravitational constant. What I can't define is the relationship between all three. And so Interesting. It, it's more dynamic. It, yeah. You can't, because it's so, everything's in motion, it's very, very dynamic. So. Um, how does that relate to today? Uh, whereas the Cold War was a known quantity, the Soviet Union and America, today we have three nuclear powers um, as of, I believe, October of 2020. Um, China has said that they have a nuclear triad. So you have three nuclear powers. 
with each with a strategic triad. And now you have to consider that this era is different than the previous. We have the United States, China, and Russia, and it's more dynamic than perhaps the state stability of the Cold War. Um, to use an example, um, we used to have uh, bombers that would sit on Guam and they were doing a continuous bomber presence. We knew it was a known quantity. Bombers would deploy to Guam as a deterrent force. Uh, today, we have moved to what we call the bomber task force operation, which is anytime we need a, a visible sign of deterrence in the world, we will send bombers to that location, Norway, the Middle East, the Pacific, wherever we need uh, to signal deterrence, we will do so. And it's just the idea that we have to be more reactive, more adaptive to this changing environment that we're in. So you mean our, our bombers no longer reside just in one place. They're ready to go sort of, I'm using the word reside, sort of reside in another location for a few months to show for deterrence purposes. Right. Which is I, why we have bombers in the triad. So when we, when we, when we say, why do we, we have these ICBMs, we have these SLBMs, why do we have bombers in the triad? Um, one, bombers are more visual. I can put them uh, in various places to signal deterrence. But also, once I launch a missile, uh, that despite what you may read in Tom Clancy novels, there's no recalling <laughs> it. So um, bombers have the ability to be recalled. Bombers have the flexibility to be retargeted. Um, again, it's that more flexible, adaptable leg of the triad. And implicit in what you were saying about this deterrence, these bombers carry nuclear weapons, right? We're talking about nuclear strategy, right? Right. Okay. Well, I mean, they don't carry them when they're deploying. They have the ability to, right? So, I mean, we don't we don't necessarily deploy with them on the aircraft. Let's make sure people understand that they're nuclear capable bombers. When they deploy, they're not taking weapons with them. I see. We uh, don't we don't have U.S. bombers plan. flying around with nuclear weapons. Yeah, that was an old. We don't want people to get the impression that when we deploy bombers, they're all care. That's not the idea. The idea is to send a visible signal. I got it. Uh, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about America's air power, what would it be? Uh, I would say uh, two. One point is that, again, the purpose of our Air Force is to go out and gain and maintain air superiority um, to make sure that our forces have freedom of action. Um, in that environment. It's also to, again, protect American uh, service people uh, when they are in harm's way because we haven't lost a server member to enemy aircraft since 1952. Uh, that the America has the most capable force, I would even say in the world today. Um, and we keep advancing uh, so that we don't have to put people in a harm's way so that other nations look at it and say, wow, we just, we can't take that, that country on. Don't mess with us. Right. Dr. D.A. Lee, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much.
The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. Music